Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, leaders, clinicians and investors that are leading the health tech revolution in the UK and beyond. As regular listeners will know, um, I am the CEO and founder of a health tech company myself called PocDoc. PocDoc sponsor this show, so thank you very much to them. We are delivering the full cardiovascular pathway digitally for the first time via an app, including a five-marker cholesterol panel, all in under 10 minutes. So that means that wherever you are, at home, in a pharmacy or wherever, you can check your cardiovascular health. We're working with the NHS and we're working with pharmacies. The reason I mention this is I want to tap in to the wider listener network. I know that we have a pretty broad church of people listening, but I thought it would be fun given that we're currently rolling out in pharmacies and across a number of areas in in the UK via the NHS. If there is anyone listening that runs a pharmacy or knows someone that runs a pharmacy, or if anyone is interested from an NHS perspective, please get in touch with the show. We're looking for new areas where we can roll out. So either find me on LinkedIn, it's Steve Roost, or on the socials, it's at Steve Roost, or go to mypocdoc.co.uk. That's M-Y-P-O-C-D-O-C.co.uk. And let's try and revolutionize the way that we assess cardiovascular disease. Now, on to today's show. Um, well, first of all, thank you to everyone for listening, whether you're listening live on the amazing UK Health Radio. Uh, Johan and his team are doing a fantastic job in growing the station. It's an honor to be on every week. If you miss my show or if you miss any of the others, UK Health Radio is now up live on all of the podcast platforms. I know that we have our own channel as well where you can catch our shows and we're also available on YouTube. So thank you very much for everyone, however you're tuning in and however you are here with us. So um, on today's show, we have a super interesting organization on today's show called Life Arc. It wasn't something I was completely familiar with prior to getting the um, getting the the guest on the show. But having done my research, it is fantastically interesting, and I'm super excited to to do the show. We have um, Dr. Melanie Lee, who's their CEO, on the show. Melanie's been involved in life science research and development, biotech, and cancer research for over thirty years. And Life Arc is a not for profit that funds scientific research and innovation and companies and innovators to help bring early scientific discoveries to uh, to us, to patients, help bridge what's called the valley of death between people coming up with an idea in academia and it actually ending up in patients. Uh, they predominantly focus on diagnostics, treatments or cures in the space of neurodegeneration, which has become uh, increasingly referred to as MMD, so motor neuron disease, which has been in the news time and time and time and time again is actually in on, on bbc this morning bbc breakfast this morning more around um impact trauma head impact trauma leading to neurodegeneration but again with um 
the 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 I think it's Rob Burrows, the guy who was used to play for Leeds Rhinos. There's a big campaign about him, so it's in the news quite a bit. Uh, and respiratory diseases. So um, as an organisation, LifeArc have pledged to fund 1.3 billion pounds worth of projects by 2030, which is a lot of funding for an organisation um, that isn't governmental in any way, shape, or form. That's a huge amount of money. In fact, I think that might even be more than some of the Innovate UK budgets, actually, which is governmental. That's, that's an interesting one we can get into. So anyway, Melanie, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, look, it's really interesting to talk about your organisation, LifeArc. So I think just before, we, we, sometimes I start the show in different ways. Sometimes we jump straight into the subject matter. Sometimes we like to try and make sure that we're all on the same page because it's kind of a broad church of of listeners. So what might be helpful just to start with is, could you just give us a couple of, you know, just give us a couple of minutes on what life is, what life arc is and, and where it kind of came from? Because I think it's a really interesting um, player in the life science ecosystem. And I just kind of think it'd be really interesting for the listeners to hear that from you. Yeah, sure. Well, life arc is, um, it's been formed about five years as life arc and it has its roots uh, with Medical Research Council technology, which was a tech transfer office that also added scientists into the organisation so that not only could we help academics on behalf of the Medical Research Council uh, move their innovations forward to help them take um, scientific ideas and findings into products, but um, we could also, with the scientists' help, actually help to um, increase the opportunity, impact and utility of some of the technologies that they developed. Mm-hmm. So uh, we had uh, we have a long history, but around about five years ago, the Medical Research Council spun us off as an independent medical charity. And part of the reason for that was the opportunity that was going to come our way to, um, to, to get a royalty stream from a drug that we'd had a lot of uh, interaction with many years before that was actually looking like it was going to um, deliver really high quality and value to patients. So we started life as LifeArc and we monetized the royalty stream. So we're now independent and we're going to put all our money, efforts and everything we do back into that translation space, particularly on behalf of UK researchers, but not exclusively for UK-based patients. Wow. So let's just unpick that a little bit. Um, So what is, I've heard of the Medical Research Council, I'm sure many people have, that's one of those terms or, or kind of acronyms that gets thrown around a little bit. So what exactly was that and where did that come from? Well, that is a government funded organisation. So that does fall under today, it falls under UKRI. Um, so now the relationship we have with Medical Research Council is as a technology transfer partner, so a translation okay. partner. But we are now independent and able to work across many um strong research organizations to help them with translation okay and what was the drug that you got royalties for uh, that drug was um Keytruda. it's marketed by merck and we originally had a hand in turning the original antibody that became Keytruda into, uh, we, we used a technology called humanization to humanize the antibody so it was going to be able to go into human beings without 
causing problems with the immune system. So we humanized it for a company called Organon. Organon were bought by Shearing Plow. Shearing Plow were bought by Merck. <laughs> Merck then marketed it. And it's probably the most successful, one of the most successful drugs in the world. It's an antibody drug and it really, really transforms the lives of many, many end-stage cancer patients. Okay, so it's it's for use in um, end-stage terminal cancer. What does it do? Well, it, it what what um what solid tumors do is they manage to protect themselves from the patient's immune system very well by protecting their outer at their outer layer, and they put little signals up that stop the immune system from penetrating the tumor. Mm-hmm. And this drug is a PD one inhibitor, and it actually blocks some of those protective signals, and in doing so, it allows the human immune system in to start to fight the cancer. So it's it's what, what we call immunotherapy, immuno-oncology therapy. And it's really revolutionizing of the oncology space. Is it used earlier in, in the cycle or is it just always used in the end stage? Well, ma- mainly as a newly launched drug, it was used in the end stage patients. Right. But more and more, I, I believe that its strategy is to bring it earlier into the treatment of patients. Okay, cool. Um, I think that's a really unique story. So whoever made that decision at the Medical Research Council, congratulations for a huge amount of foresight, which isn't always the case. So good job, people. Got it right this time. Um, And so what's Life as a Charity been like? Life as a Charity for LifeArc is really exciting because when we did monetize the royalty stream, we actually worked with the Canadian Pension Fund. They actually bought the royalty stream and that's what they gave us the £1.3 billion for. So we have the money and we have the ambition. We're mostly, we're an organization of about 250 people, maybe soon to be 300, mixture of scientists, lawyers, financiers, investors, human resources, everybody you need comms. But our ambition is to take our industrial training, which is where most of us as scientists come from, and use that to, to or everything we've learned, use it to help research understand the potential of their science to to create new products for patients and was that always what this what whatever the iteration of life arc before it was spun out has that always been the mission or is this a new mission after reforming or being spun out as a charity just, just well, well the space is yeah the, the space is what you call translation that okay. movement of ideas to products the um the ambition now of course can be far greater than it ever was which is the really exciting piece about being in life arc at the time and life arc's only just on the cusp of building its its reputation externally so it's absolutely forgivable but the people don't really know about it in its current form but we now have the opportunity to work with uh, major academic groups in the UK so that's okay. who we're aligning with and we encourage this process of translation so we look at science we look at scientific findings we look at opportunities and then we actually work with little charities as well that have also invested in research and we actually say what could this research mean to patients and okay. then when we actually have an idea mechanistically and opportunity what's the opportunity for that product is it to make a diagnostic is it to, to create a device is it to treat a patient 
What is it? And then when we know that, then we actually decide whether or not we open up a translational challenge. Mm. And I can talk more about those, but those are the large investment vehicles, multi-project programs that we will work with to make the translation happen. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've, um, you know, I've always kind of, I've always thought it's sort of in, an interesting quirk of, of the media landscape where it, one of the reasons why I started the show was was to give organizations and, and companies and innovators more of a broadcast platform to to get their kind of longer form mission out there because I felt like in the general broadcast media space it was very sort of announcement driven and message driven mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of being able to more broadly talk about things that are actually quite complicated and quite complex and lots mm-hmm. of different moving parts and all this kind of stuff however the broadcast media loves an announcement about early stage scientific findings of wonder drugs and they they love it and 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 i read these things and i'm like you're talking like 15 years if ever from from when that's gonna but i don't think the general public really realize that right like is that is that sort of part of the issue around the translation work that you guys do is trying to figure out what of this scientific research is even going to go anywhere it's like congratulations you did a piece of research in i don't know a small number of potentially samples um but there's still a long way to go before it hits a patient (laughs) yeah you're very right Steve in fact most of my career was spent in pharma so pharma's got these really long timelines sometimes 25 years from an an idea or a piece of science moving to a product on the market for patients but life arc strategy is going to be more fun than that because we're looking (laughs) for we're looking for I think the time is right for multi-tech working together and so we will take on projects that will deliver information uh, that could be for for could form the base of an app like your work okay. um, to patients that we could diagnostics like again like your work um, devices um, uh, right right all the way through to therapies that may right. take much longer to bring and so because I believe wholeheartedly in the time for um, improving the efficiency and and speed with which we can do R&D. I also believe that some of the answers will come from technologies that we introduce into the space. And so, uh, and we also know if you empower patients with information, you end up with a faster track to the specialists that they need. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a really interesting approach particularly one that challenges the kind of the normal timeframes and timescales and, you know, tries to help speed things up because there's, there's a reality that, you know, I don't know what the percentage is. You might know more than me, but of, of academic research in the scientific space that translates into actual real world, you know, products, services, treatments is, I would imagine relatively low, um, you know, and, and a lot of that will be because, there, there might be some real gems there that aren't being supported in the way that they should be just due to the funding landscape. Yes, there are numerous reasons why ideas don't make it through to products, um, not least of which is the, is the difficulty, the complexity of what, what the decisions are and, and then the many pitfalls that you can go into trying to develop a therapeutic. Mm. But I believe at the moment that we've seen particularly from the COVID era, that empowering the patient is a tremendous tool to uh, actually getting people to make good choices about themselves, their health, and actually fast-tracking themselves to get the right treatment. So uh, there are many angles that LifeArc's going at this from. It's not just about 
the right therapy for patients, but it's about um, revolutionising the world of the patient so that they're all together more informed, more empowered, more enabled to, to take some responsibility. And there are lots of other elements that make the chances of success of translation from science to therapy mm -hmm. uh, very very uh, it's a very high risk area but yeah. i think we can improve that risk with some clever integration of data and technology up front like what so actually just let's take a step back let's make sure everyone's on the same page about what yeah. we're talking about with translation so i think i i mean i understand it but just really basically what what is this translation piece and why is it really critical in bringing therapies, drugs, treatments to market? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, why it's critical is because the world of academia is about deep biology, deep um, understanding of um, chemistry, and sometimes the longer-term application is not the object of the research. It's to mm -hmm. really go deep into understanding something. If you're a translational scientist or you've, you've been trained in industry, you, you tend to ask questions of what's the mechanism we're talking about, where might you find um, this gene expression, if you're talking about a gene, how might this, might this be a target uh, yeah. to disrupt a process that's gone wrong? So translation is that analytical set of steps that takes you from finding to potential product yeah and understanding i i would assume the patient need the system need always you, you know and, and and trying to i mean we we obviously have had quite a lot of interaction with academia and, and things like that my background is not academic so my what, what the, some of the first interactions between myself and and academics were quite interesting when you know it was it was fairly clear that there's there's as much they get as much joy potentially more from the journey as from the destination. Whereas entrepreneurs and business people are pretty focused on the destination as a, as a target of where we need to get to. Yeah, you're exactly right. And then there is a big difference, but they do very well together. Oh, well, they have, well, look, let's, let's be totally honest. It's, it's, you, you, you require a sort of a critical mass I, well, this is the way I think about it, a critical mass of scientific innovation and research and stuff to be happening, almost like a kind of a, a soup of ideas and thoughts and, 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 and early stage things for then other people to interact with and say, well, hold up a second, that can actually fit over here and we can do that with this. If you don't have that first bit, then, you, you know, you're, you're, you're in all kinds of trouble. I think. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, we, we definitely benefit by working together. And that's the way that we can boost innovation for the UK, especially. Well, we're going to come on to that very subject because most recently the government's been very keen on, you know, lumbering the science and technology industries with quite a lot of pressure of, of delivery and, you know, being a major cornerstone or even bigger cornerstone of of the uk economy so um we're going to stop for a couple of minutes commercial break now after that i want to jump into your work on the two specific areas that you or you certainly highlight sort of publicly i know you do quite a bit but mnd look you do do quite a spread of things but mnd, MND and respiratory as to why you've chosen those and, and and what the work is going on because particularly mnd is very much in the headlines like like we talked about at the beginning of the show um and and yeah i think it'd be really really interesting to try and unpick that so we'll be back in two minutes with my guest dr melanie lee the ceo of life arc uk health radio the station that makes you feel good
apples and pears, beef and skittles, cider with Rosie, common or garden, ant and deck, fish and chips, mum and dad. UK Health Radio and Health Triangle magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at ukhealthradio.com. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with myself, Steve Roost, and my guest, Dr. Melanie Lee, the CEO of LifeArc. Okay, Melanie, before the break, we were just about to kind of get on to a couple of the disease areas that, that LifeArc has spent some time focusing on. One is motor neurone disease and the other is respiratory diseases. Should we start with motor neurone disease? I think to kick off, yeah. it would be interesting for me as to why you did choose that area and what is it specifically about that area where you think, you know, why could life arc help so much in that area, if that makes any sense. So yeah, over, over to you. Sure. Thank you very much. So we um, are working through a system of translational challenges and we chose, and, and that is a big program, which can have multiple projects, which as I said before, can cover anything from a diagnostic digital device or drug type focus. We chose MND because we had quite close connections with the whole ecosystem of MND, which as you you rightly said from this morning's announcements on the television, for example, is very closely connected community, a very active community and very strongly involved with patients. So we already had that established in the UK. And when we looked at it, one of the things that we make as a criterion is um, can we do any good ourselves? Can life up? becoming part of that, actually do something. And when we connected with the charities, My Name's Doddy and the MND Association, etc., we realised that uh, we could do something. In fact, we could bring our industrial knowledge of translation into their ecosystem. And by coordinating and using our um, our knowledge around there, we actually realised that despite this being a most debilitating and serious disease, it actually was a failed um, commercial opportunity in many respects. It's, oh, really? quite, rare, like, it's quite a rare disease and not one that was receiving considerable commercial attention. So that, that's an ideal opportunity. So we talk to patients and their charities. And of course, the the real um, hope for, for these patients is that we get a cure. But unfortunately, the diagnostic 
phase of this is clinical is, is when the disease clinically manifests and yep. this is actually when patients are on quite a steep decline okay and, is that um, because the, di- the diagnosis at the moment happens from sort of cognitive basis i.e visible symptoms that visible. can be then visibly noted or somewhat like speech verbal memory retention as opposed to a diagnostic blood test which could detect markers way earlier Exactly. And it's even uh, it's really interesting, Steve, because those clinical markers also um, do not distinguish the underlying cause of their own disease between different patients. So to actually do something to treat patients late stage when you've got clinical markers that are not indicative of mechanism Mm. is actually too late. So one of the real unmet needs was earlier diagnosis and then earlier understanding through that diagnosis the mechanisms that that are are actually the underlying cause of the disease so it became obvious to us that there were several projects that we could identify one would be um, means of proper diagnosis that would point to mechanism making sure that's readily available to patients to to see if they are at risk and if they are at risk what categories do they fall into and could they in some way avoid that risk um then just by doing that you actually open up those that that area of patients who are at risk and maybe they may be not only more prefer more easy to treat because they're actually earlier in the stage of their disease, but you may get the treatment much better because you know specifically what's what's actually going right. wrong. So, and there's okay. there's repurposing opportunities in there as well with established drugs, which is a faster route. Okay. So let's just try and unpick some of that. So yeah. let's go from the beginning, which is diagnosis, through to treatment, yeah. through to cure. Cure is obviously where we all want to get to. Yeah. You know we'll we'll see where we go that's presumably i would imagine still in research zone although actually i've I've heard of some things that might be coming out one of a good friend of mine that went to university actually is a he has a big lab in edinburgh and is is hopefully touch wood um onto something in this space so um but yes so let's talk about diagnosis so so is there is there currently a way to do a blood-based or other sample-based diagnosis for MND or what is you know an earlier version of that diagnosis other than a cognitive assessment? I don't believe there is a blood-based way at the moment there may be so I I may be wrong about that there is certainly distinction between different patients with EEG so when you measure their their brain their brain function and um, what I did read and I I wouldn't consider myself to be the expert at this stage but I did read a paper where there were at least four categories and I believe there may even be more now of MND patient that can that that report on the basis of their EEG signal and that's quite early on and that those are considered very robust markers that don't change through the through the through the life of the patient that's really interesting because presumably the earlier that you can diagnose the earlier that you can treat so um what uh, and you mentioned things about repurposing existing treatments and things like that so it are, are there effective treatments in this space or, or or not really at the moment and we're waiting for some new things to come out 
there, well, amongst the uh, advanced therapies that exist, there's just such a plethora of, of opportunities now okay. uh, to treat patients on the basis of distinct mechanisms. Once you can identify what mechanism's going wrong, there are also opportunities, as you see in in breakthrough medicines, for gene therapies right. and gene editing solutions to diseases. So there. There is, in fact, I think it's a, 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 a small RNA molecule that is actually treating one tiny subset of MND patients who have particular genetic mutation. So these things will come. They will come quite fast, I believe. Uh, and that the importance of life art being in the space is putting money there to really bring to the fore those who have solutions when yeah. the market size might be quite small, but the actual benefit to patients will be huge. And that is the criterion that life art puts into where we go. And presumably, but I don't know because I've not looked into it, the cost to healthcare services of people that have MND is probably quite high. Yes. So there's there's a there's an argument from just a which sounds harsh, but from an economic perspective for health services to yeah. be interested in this area because um, it, it, any reduction in costs could be pretty sizable with with better treatments and or a cure. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the cost of, of the patient in the normal course of disease is astronomical right. in terms of healthcare. But of course, the patient journey, which we believe is so uh, important, give better quality of life, better opportunity to avoid or delay or ameliorate yeah. symptoms. Um, that is enormous, too. So we believe yeah. if we get therapies that will match that um, benefit for patients, then the, the cost won't be an issue. No, I mean, and, and from a, yeah, I mean, from a patient quality of life perspective, it's, it's sort of almost immeasurable, I would, I would imagine. Um, so, so you mentioned there's, again, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page, because I think particularly when I watched the BBC News this morning, even with news readers and things like that, as they should know, there's still a bit of blurring around the edges about what's what and what's not that. So, for example, motor neuron disease is not, um, is is not necessarily or i don't know if it includes um, cro- um the, the collision trauma encephalopathy that's different i believe right so that's not concussion it's not it's not concussion caused or anything like that that's different right well i think or is I it think, all in the same family i don't think we of? know steve i think that's the problem i don't think we know oh, okay. what we believe is that there may be a uh, there may be a genetic element genetic cause development which puts yep. patients at risk <laughs> There, in fact, there certainly is an element of genetics, which there is. There are some familial uh, predispositions. Okay. Um, it may be trauma, and because of your genetics, trauma is more impactful for some than for others right. in terms of um, pre- predisposition to disease. Um, so well, that, we that's sort of like that predisposition must be anecdote. Well, seems anecdotally accurate because otherwise everybody that played rugby would have you know what i mean like uh, th- th- there would be it, yeah. th- th- there would be a much higher incidence unless there must there must be some predisposition i would think i, um, I would have thought so it could be the type of injury though it could be sure. the position that these people play it could and and then then of course the majority of patients it's an aging process so again yeah. we don't know what the cause of that is but but one um very it, this is all very anecdotal and i don't want to be quoted as an expert but one <laughs> really enlightened clinician said who does treat a lot of patients said to me uh, he just wonders if 
extreme athletic performance is actually uh, correlated with the person's ability to actually damage themselves in a particular way. Mm. And it's to do with oxygen utilization in the muscles, for example. So, wow. so there are lots of wonderful. Wow. That's uh, a, that's a, that's a, that's quite a theory, isn't it? Blimey. It is a theory. So you would get top sportsmen, but the very fact that they can be like that and women, the very fact they can be like that may make them more predisposed. So wow. who knows, but it may lead to better safety training methods. Well, who knows? I mean, it just it just has to, and particularly because of the hype, like Dottie Weir and is it Rob Burrows, and um, there was the England hooker. What was his name? Steve, somebody or other. And there was a Welsh guy, Ryan Jones, recently. Like, you know, I, I just I can't see this not becoming something that they have to really, really, really look at. I, I, I just I can't see it. It has to happen. So that's the beauty of our program is that we will. Um, we work, we, 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 we talk to patients, we're guided by the experts in the field, and we are actually very open minded about where our funding can benefit. And we want to have short, medium, as well as long term um, results for right. patients. That makes sense. Yeah, like the, right, exactly. That makes sense. So you've got some kind of some things moving through the pipeline while somebody or some other people are working on the, the moonshot, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. And so um, what successes have you or are, well, you might be at the beginning, so it might be a bit early, but have you got any sort of case studies or successes in the MND space or, or what are you most excited about that you're involved in that you can talk about in this space, so to speak? In the MND space? Um, well, it's very early for us, I think, in the MND okay. space. So I really um, don't have significant results at this stage that I can talk about. All I can see at the moment is the number of projects that are building are really exciting. I think the repurposing programs where there'll be, um, once we, we think different mechanisms are, are going to be involved, the repurposing program enables us to look up drugs that are involved in those mechanisms mm-hmm. and then actually um, do some research to understand, might they be beneficial to these patients? So, so that yeah, one will just, evolve. So I just want to pick up on that because I think that's a really interesting area my wife used to work in pharma and was one of the areas that she worked on for a while and it was super interesting to me this idea of repurposing so um yeah i think that that just just because like you kind of said it as a throwaway comment earlier about how that can save a lot of time because these things have already been drugs or treatments have been licensed for one thing but they could well be repurposed to another thing which would be easier because if you look at underlying mechanisms of neurodegeneration, they're very multifaceted. They could be inflammation. It can be myelin sheath degeneration. Yeah. Um, it, it can be um, a, you know, glial cell il- infiltration into different parts of the brain. It can be all sorts of reasons for damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are drugs that actually work on those mechanisms to treat other diseases and so the, the question that there are there are breakthroughs um with repurposing medicines uh, that, are, that are quite quite well known across the world uh, and it, it really because you're taking an already known to be safe drug that's been approved to go into man you cut so many years off i mean but, but that's what people don't realize you're cutting years off Years like th- this isn't this isn't like oh you know okay six months whatever this is literally years because they've done all of the phase one two three etc human trials and so on which is, ma- which is massive yeah massive yeah. time saving 
If you look at, um, and again, I'm not an expert, but if you look at the thalidomides, which were used really early on for um, nausea in, in pregnancy with the yeah. results that, that, that obviously we all know about, but actually they're really, they're used for patients with a multiple myeloma now, and they provide right? a lot of benefit. They slow the, slow the disease down massively. So again, uh, that, that's an example of shift it to a completely different patient population and the mechanism of action is exactly what's required in one case versus another and are there organizations there must be or researchers that are sort of scouring various clinical databases or wherever this stuff is sort of housed to try and make these connections about okay well this thing works over there but it could work over here or there certainly are and life Arc has a portal on our website to help oh, people actually go in and ask the right questions and we we will give assistance to actually help someone find out if there are opportunities for their particular unmet need. I think that's fascinating. I mean, and and, and to go back to your point, we'll do one more question and then we'll switch because I know that you've got some exciting work that you've done with tuberculosis in Africa that I want to come to, um, which I think would be super interesting to talk about. But your, your point that you made earlier about patient engagement, now clearly, I think, that there's been such a huge amount of patient engagement driven by some of the high profile sufferers of MMD. And and how important is that for, for getting funding and getting attention and getting progress in an area, a disease area? Oh, I think it's absolutely wonderful. We, you, you, the, the, the amazing thing that in my history of working in pharma is that um, you ha- we haven't been close enough to the patient at this early stage. Right, and right. I find patients are curious, they're brave, they're open to, um, to, to new ideas. And, you know, they, they're actually incredibly bold. So whilst all patients might prefer not to be in their situation and want to cure. At the same time, they're, they're incredible activists and, and, and enthusiasts, and they will give you really good insights into how just to make my life better. And it's amazing. So we get great heart from that. And um, in our respiratory work that we could talk about, they absolutely describe on a daily basis our patients in that area of respiratory how we can help them relatively simply um rather than give them a cure like how like give me some examples well the 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 patients who have um bronchiectasis or 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 cf um like what what, what's bronchiectasis yeah you might have to break that one down that is a that is a lung disease that actually stops the lungs tissue being as nice and flexible as a normal healthy lung and so they become very prone to infection in their lungs and these patients describe their lives going from week to week never knowing if the next week they're going to be well enough to do what they had planned so they wow. really beg us to help with the predictability and understanding if they're likely to go to an exacerbation and oh, then if they are how do we avoid it how do we stop that's really that? that's really interesting we had someone on the show probably 12 months ago from a group called spirit health I don't know if it was what's the disease bronchi bronchi bronchiectasis bronchiectasis. I don't know if it was that, but it was very similar around. I think it might have been um, COP, so so chronic COPD. COPD COPD and exactly about that exacerbation issue, which was if you can prevent or predict an exacerbation, it makes the patient's life just dramatically better. 
Yeah. So yeah. it's not like they want to never have them. They understand it will happen. But just the, if you can avoid it, great. But almost more just the knowledge that it could happen under certain circumstances. And that that's really valuable. So when we come back, I'll tell you a little bit about that Project Breeze, which is um, a project that really looks across technologies to predict those exacerbations. You're running my show now. You're telling me I have to do a commercial break, which I do. So, which I absolutely do. At least you're here, because otherwise I'd have just kept talking. So, anyway, this is our last commercial break of the show. Um, we'll be back in two minutes with my guest, Dr. Melanie Lee, the CEO of Life Arc. We'll be back in two minutes. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. A for horses, B for mutton, Seymour Cheeks, Dig for Victory, E UK Health Radio and Health Triangle Magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle Magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at UKHealthRadio.com. T for two. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest, Dr. Melanie Lee, the CEO of Life Arc. Okay, so before you told me that we had to go for a commercial break, which was correct, I did, um, we were going to talk about Project Breathe um in the respiratory disease area so um sure. please car- carry on okay so our patients with bronchiectasis and cystic fibrosis say they want early detection they want of, of infection they want to know the right diagnosis of the pathogen that um, they may be suffering from and they want better treatment all around so project breathe is an ai technology it uses signals from home monitoring equipment which measures oxygen levels lung function activity weight and pulse rate for example to predict those future exacerbations or flare-ups and sometimes 10 days more earlier than perhaps the patient might know. So the AI technology um, will allow treatment to be given earlier. Um, It should prevent or minimize that exacerbation which throws patients' lives into turmoil. And potentially it should protect the long-term lung damage that can occur because of those exacerbations. So it really helps people to be managed at home. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a project that we're doing with the NIH, with the National Institute for Health Research. So it's um, really, uh, and and at Papworth Hospital. So it's really exciting, that one. We've worked with the NIHR before. They're they're amazing. So all of our NHS workers been in conjunction with the NIHR. So totally appreciate how great those guys are. Is there a private company involved in that as well, providing the AI, or is it kind of homegrown within the the NHS? Just curious, or the NIHR? 
I think it's mainly um, come from the NHS research itself, but it, oh. it's probably involving um, a number of smaller players. I, I don't know the details. Okay. That. I was just curious. So I think that that's great. And the reason why that that's great is that none of those, at least I guess, none of those particular, those markers or those pieces of data are particularly expensive to gather. Okay. That's you know, right. like you're not talking about hugely invasive diagnostics. You're not involving a laboratory. A lot of the time, these patients might have those pieces of devices, equipment anyway, pulsometer, pulse oximeter. Mm-hmm. You know, these things are not that if you're suffering from a chronic condition, it, it, it you may well have those things anyway, you know, and, and actually just writing the software to be able to combine those into a predictive model is also not crazily complicated no. and so it, it's just a uh, that's such a sensible plan yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. such a great simple thing to do right and again it empowers the patient it allows them yes. in their homes to live their lives and you know this is what patients ask for they, they really want well, to live normal lives yeah, and, and also again without wishing to sort of you know be i don't know two pounds and pence about the whole thing but it's what the health system wants as well they want people in their houses living their lives. They don't want people having had a massive exacerbated, you know, attack and being in A&E. For example. I was a bit shocked when I heard them talk about the side effects of the high dose antibiotics they have to have as well. I had right, okay. realized when I heard them that, that, that so each and, and, and we talk also about this ongoing lung lung damage with each exacerbation. So, um, yeah, it really is important to to help them and empower them. And so Project Breathe is very important to us. And, and how um, how kind of effective is that? process do do you have any information to say well people that are on and follow that sort of pathway are x times less likely to have an exacerbation or end up in hospital is that data come through there or is it still being worked on not yes it's not not yet mature it's ongoing as a clinical study so hopefully we will be able to enroll i think it's 450 patients we want in a uk wide study so we will be able to obviously statistically prove the benefits of that to the patient yeah and you'll get great qualitative data off of that as well you know patient stories and things like that um okay so are you doing did you did you want to talk about the stuff in africa with tuberculosis as well yes i do so that's a that's um a research diagnostic test that we have built ourselves okay uh, on our edinburgh site uh who are credited diagnostic um site and it is a live bacterial load assay so it is an assay that was um developed with stephen gillespie who's a, a senior um professor in scotland also and we've taken um the, the assay measures live TB bacteria. So now we're in four clinical sites in Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was St. And- Andrews um, Gillespie's at. Um, so it's four clinical sites in Africa. And we have their TB monitoring sites. So they mm-hmm. will actually take a lot of patients in on a, on a daily and weekly basis. And they will give them varying treatments. The problem with previous assays is that you measure... Um, not live bacterial load, but you can measure in the sputum of these patients the bacterium, the TB bacterium. But actually, if you want to look at the effectiveness of therapy, you need to see whether or not they, these bacteria are alive. Okay. And so our our product is actually 
quite different to previous products. Is it a is it a mouth swab or is it a spit? It's, it's a sputum. It's a okay. sputum measure of of live bacteria. So we started in January twenty three. We've got three hundred and sixty four patients total to be recruited, and we're well on our way. With I think it's upwards of thirty or so patients okay. now. Great. And we will be able to inform the medics treating these patients whether the therapy that they're being put on, because there are a number of different therapies, is actually effective in that patient's case. That's massive, because otherwise, I guess, previously, in order to get that data, it would have been a lab test, right? Some kind of blood draw, lab test, whether the person comes back again in two weeks, three weeks, where's the local pathology lab, who's paying for that? You yeah. know, I think that that's that's a real step forward. I mean, look, we're obviously at PocDoc, we're a clear fan and believer in point of care testing in all its forms, mm-hmm. manifest forms, assuming that it's safe and, and accurate um, and, 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 and performed responsibly. Um, but yeah, I think that's great. That's really great. It is good and it's done quickly. It's done on site. Um, so I think there's an awful lot of um, benefit. And so at the moment, our diagnostic is being tested itself to see if it effectively can track response to therapy. Once it's proven to be able to do that and helpful to the medics and the patients, then, of course, the door will open for it to become a more um, commercial or broadly available test. And we will hope to work with organisations that will help to get it out there. Into Yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of those. So we we work with um, PATH, which is part of the... um, uh bill well it's, it's sort of connected to the bill and melinda gates foundation yeah. um, it's also part of the global access alliance and things like that so we've developed a polio rapid test using our smartphone technology so um that can be deployed in remote areas of pakistan senegal tunisia polio hotspots basically so it's a lateral flow which can be read by our PocDoc software and it automatically integrated back with the surveillance authorities the the, the central digital hub so um you know mostly to, to kind of a similar use case as as, as you but even for further remote and even further rural um so yeah I, I completely understand the use case for that and i i think i'm sure that some of those global access or um you know organizations would be would be really interested in in that um so oh go on sorry yeah, absolutely no no we can extend that type of methodology into other and uh, other diseases as well so we're intending to do that for great uh, another translational challenge that will come and be announced quite soon which is a global health which will look at neglected tropical diseases, viral threats and um, antimicrobial resistance, all three very key Massive. Uh, issues for the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hu- hu- huge possible black swan events, right? Like any one of those things, you know, mm. fungal, antimicrobial resistance, any of those things could be a really bad thing that yeah, can happen. Really so yeah. that'll be that'll be life art going beyond our UK borders, particularly, and 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 it's all around that global health. Yeah, I think that I think that would be great. I, you know, I think that um, you know clearly, and this is a really nice segue into what I wanted to talk about now. By the way, um, the the UK clearly has a unique, I think, unique attitude towards life science, scientific innovation, scientific development at that early stage. I think is really, really, really strong in that. And I know that that's obviously a big part of what the government wants to push as well, which is all well and good. Um, and and I think taking that, exporting that sort of mentality yeah. to other areas of the world is a really, really good thing that we can do. Um, mm-hmm. But but what's your view generally about the sort of, I don't know, la- broader landscape, you know, in, in the UK and, and, and this idea that 
um, uh, science and technology is the sort of powerhouse or one of the powerhouses of the future UK economy? And, you know, do you feel like that that we're set up for that to be the case? And like, I don't know, what are your thoughts? It's really interesting. I think about it often because we want to make the most of the UK. So we've got a fantastic research base. We always say that we um, need translation and we particularly need translation, I think, in life sciences, because we had a lot of pharma companies here and they naturally did do that preclinical and early translational work. And they're changing their model as they get bigger and bigger. Not all of them, but, but a large number have withdrawn from this very high risk space. And yet at the same time, we've got a really vibrant venture pool um, yeah. you know, and, and some of, of uh, money coming in from the US as well. So we've got an enormous opportunity in the UK. But what we must do is make sure our science is mixed, the science base is mixed, mm-hmm. because I think the old model of developing a therapeutic absent knowledge of your patient population is actually not going to give us the best opportunity. The no. new science for new modalities is so incredible that you can fix genes in individuals and um, give them fully fully functioning um, and long lives that that is doesn't fit the old commercial model of big companies so I think the future is is multi-tech working together the UK has everything it needs to do that and what we must try and do and I do see really innovative venture companies springing up now who recognize that the 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 return on investment of multi-tech investments is just as good as it would have been if you'd been very fixated on therapies and uh, recently spoke with um, a group who are really looking at rare diseases and they say as long as the therapeutic benefit that you can envision can be achieved with the science the the, um, commercial return will be there because of the because you offset it exactly as you said with the previous cost you would have paid to care for a patient who just carried on having their disease so there's enormous seed change and it's the answers will come from multi-tech working together so the thing that blew me away, we had a guy on um, here is a really nice guy called Jason C. Foster, who um, is kind of a, one of the sort of leading figures in the tech bio space. I don't know if you've come across tech bio, um, which is it's kind of like what you just sort of talked about a little bit, which is, you know, we already have some therapies that have been developed and clinically approved, but we can't manufacture them at a scale or a price that is anywhere close to being acceptable. So they're hugely effective. Right. So someone's gone out and done all the clinical work and got all the approvals and done all of that good stuff. Um, But now there's actually weirdly a kind of a manufacturing issue. But because of the way the therapies are, they're biological therapies, personalized gene therapies, CAR T cell therapies that harvest your own T cells and reprogram them and so on. This is not like, you know, pill packing. Okay, there's like heavy biological, biochemical, um, you know, uh, sort of infrastructure that's required as well as the sort of engineering, manufacturing, high throughput, you know, scalability component to it. I think that stuff's really, really interesting. And, that, yeah. and that's definitely a completely new modality because it's it's neither drug discovery because it's already been discovered, it's already been approved, nor is it just straight out manufacturing, um, you know, productization, scale up. It's sort of somewhere between the two. I think it's super interesting. 
And I, I'm a great believer in as long as people, once people have proven, and I'd always rather they prove, they prove that the type of modality can create the, the benefit that we hope for, then there are so many creative people who can do um, production technology, who can innovate around that, who can um, take things that are very, uh, very resource intensive and miniaturize them or make them commercially viable there really are i just hope our venture investors um will will recognize that that can be done and then actually being able to cure people who would inevitably die at the age of five um, but actually you give them lives just like we recently had from orchard therapeutics the little um, mld babies who if, if they're actually caught before the age of two and their stem cells are um, change to produce a missing enzyme they will actually live normal lives is that so, right what, what's ml what's mld it's metachromatic oh. leukodystrophy but it's okay. a very rare disease if babies don't show symptoms till they're about two but if you actually treat them before the age of two then they should live normal lives it's incredible wow. technology is astounding we and I, I have every belief we can get there the, the production right ultimately wow that's amazing that i mean how fantastic is that but also you know the pressure on being able to get that out there at some scale to make sure we don't miss any of those babies well they're real pioneers uh, and uh, they, they've done a fantastic job so we've got one minute left and and a last show i had i got told off by my producer johan because we went over um, so just before we go, if you had any advice to anyone who's currently being a scientist, wants to be a scientist, trying to found a scientific adventure, what, what would your advice be? Trying to, uh, oh, don't give up, be totally resilient. And what I always say to anybody who's an entrepreneur, whenever somebody tells you a reason why something can't work, say thank you very much, I really appreciate your input, and then go away and work out how you're going to get around that problem. So my motto is outperform those critics and come back with solutions. I love it. There's nothing else to say. On that note, Dr. Melanie Lee, the CEO of Life Art. Um, thank you very much for coming on the show. Where do people go if they want to find out more about LifeArc? What's the web address? LifeArc.org. LifeArc.org. Okay, guys, thank you very much for listening. Melanie, thank you for coming on. and We'll be back again next week. Thank you. Dreaming one day I'll watch as you're leaving Cause you got tired of my scheming